Let's turn to Luke chapter 7 and verse 29. Let's actually move forward from that. We'll read from verse 36. That's the main passage we're looking at. Let's move forward to verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose... The one, for, the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, like I said a few moments ago, There are many instances in the life of Jesus Christ where people found him and approached him and they behaved in different ways. And in several occasions, we see these wonderful examples of people who had been touched by him and they ended up at his feet. And Luke mentions a lot of these kinds of instances He's very interested in the people that interacted with Christ and the effect Christ had on their lives. And he often pairs uh, these people up. Uh, That's one of Luke's favorite things to do. Uh, He was a historian and he interviewed many people as he uh, ministered along with Paul and wanted to record the life of of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ, he interviewed many people to get accurate accounts of what had actually happened. And when he puts it all together, there are several examples of this kind of situation. He likes to pair them up. A well-known one is uh, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, whose daughter was 12 years old and who died, or was dying, and by the time Christ arrived, she had died. 
And on the way there, Christ is stopped because of an incident with another woman, an unnamed woman. And Luke records this, and this woman had a flow of blood and was ceremonially unclean and and couldn't be cured. And Christ cured her. Now, she had that flow of blood for 12 years, and Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. And Luke describes for us how these two life situations which were so different, a ruler of a synagogue, a leader, a, a man who would have been considered well in the community and who is named as Jairus and whose daughter would have been seen as very important. He was almost like a pastor or something like that and his, they were in the synagogue and his daughter was part of the covenant and all of these things, but the daughter died this other woman who is unnamed and who is impure and who cannot worship publicly because of the impurity, she has been dealing with that for 12 years. In one house you have 12 years of joy and the raising of a child. In the other house you have 12 years of complete loneliness and impurity and anguish. And that woman isn't even named. We don't even know her name, but we know she's in glory because the Lord saved her. And interestingly enough, she touched his feet. She went into the crowd and touched just the hem of his garment. She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I will be well. And Luke records that for us. There are other examples he pairs together. Obviously, Zechariah and Elizabeth who were married. Anna and Simeon in the temple. So you see these pairs. Lots of uh, a male and a female. And sometimes from very different stratas of society. The most well-known in Luke's gospel is the rich man and Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that Jesus knew and loved, but a parable Christ told of a very wealthy man who was religious and had all that he needed and feasted sumptuously every day and had all the pleasures that the world could give him and the status and the respect and a beggar who had nothing, who was at his gate every day and that that people scorned and despised. And And there's a reversal there. When Christ tells the parable, he doesn't give the rich man a name, but he gives Lazarus, the beggar, a name. So Christ is very specific about these situations. There's often a named person and an unnamed person, a man and a woman, or someone very rich and someone very poor. And a great contrast is struck. And Luke keeps recording it to shock us and to tell us that the gospel is upside down and that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first, and that those who seem like the scum of the earth, or those who you wouldn't think would be saved, are eventually saved, and those who consider themselves to be saved, or those who consider themselves like this man in this story, to be well and to be positioned well, that he was not saved. In this example, we have a very basic situation. Luke records many feasts around the temple and feasting in homes. It's a theme throughout Luke's gospel and the kind of interactions Christ had at these feasts and meals. And what we have here is a meal that's being held in a prominent man's home and he invites Jesus Christ to come to his home to interact with him. Now, let's be clear, this is a test. It's not a normal dinner invitation, it's a test. He wants to observe Christ. We know earlier on in the chapter that the Pharisees have rejected Christ. And Christ says of them in verse 32 of this chapter that the men of this generation, what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We mourned to you, but you did not weep. And John came, neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon, but I came eating and drinking, and you say I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he, he is denouncing the Pharisees here. There's an official recognition now that as a school, the Pharisees have rejected him, that the that the leaders, that the, the theologically trained, they have rejected the Savior. And Christ makes that clear in, in verse 30. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, for they were not baptized by John. 
in verse 29, when the people heard him, the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized by John. So the tax collectors didn't mind humbling themselves and being baptized by John, but the Pharisees kept back to observe, and they eventually rejected. So you see that that contrast there, that Christ and John preached one gospel. John's gospel was more fierce. It's the same gospel, but it was presented in a very fierce uh, manner. He was the plow that broke the ground of Israel and prepared the way for Christ to drop that seed in. But he was a man of grace, and he preached the grace of God. But there's a definite contrast, and he was like an Old Testament prophet with what he wore and what he ate. And, and Christ was the opposite to him in those practical senses. But the point is, they're one, and they preach the one message. And remarkably, it's the Pharisees who say, we don't want this message, but it's people like tax collectors, people who shouldn't have a gospel, or people that shouldn't know the law of the God of Israel, tax collectors, traitors, people that work for Rome, people that take money from the people, and the prostitutes, as we read earlier. It's people like that that just had an open door for the gospel to come in, but the Pharisees, the gospel couldn't get in. They rejected the will of God for themselves. They did not like Christ, his methods, his message, and they just rejected it. And Christ puts a stamp on that, saying it has been rejected. It's in light of that that a dinner invitation is then given from verse 36 onwards. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. This man is called Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's trained. He knows the law of God. People respect this man. This, this man is known in that town, in that city. They know who Simon is. Simon has opinions. Simon knows the word of God. Simon is the type of person that if the common people are having a dispute, he's the kind of man you would go to and say, you're very wise, um, what do you think about this? You're very experienced. You've been acknowledged as a, a Pharisee and a leader. Um, what do you think about this matter? And the Pharisees are being taken up and they are addicted to criticism of Christ. They, they are speaking all the time about Christ. They are analyzing every single thing that he does. And he invites Christ for, for dinner. And it, it seems uh, so pleasant and uh, innocent. A dinner is usually a very positive thing, a very enjoyable thing, where people's guards are meant to be let down. That's not what this is like. Christ accepts the invitation, but this man is watching. He is watching. He doesn't expect this thing to happen. That wasn't his plan. But he was certainly going to watch Christ, and he was certainly going to raise questions, innocent questions in the midst of the conversation, and see what Christ might say about the law of God and what he might say about the temple and these things. He wants to see this close up, and he gets it close up. This is in his house. And Christ goes, he would have taken his, his pupils with him, his disciples, and the men eat and they gather around a low table in this Jewish house where they're not sitting like we do, but they lean against a low table on the left elbow with, their, with the rest of their bodies uh, protruding out away from the table. They're reclining and leaning and relaxing in the evening, and they would eat with their right hand that was freed up by the leaning on the left. So they're, they're around a table. Simon is the host and he would have seated people very carefully, that the important people are near him, and people are given places of honor. Christ was invited to another man's house, and Christ noted very carefully how obsessed these men were with where these folks were seated. And Christ said, the gospel's the other way around. It's the first who shall be last, and the last first. So he's very near Christ. He can see Christ. He can see the sweat on Christ's face. He can lean out and touch him if he wants. He can hear the tone of his voice. He can look right into Christ's eyes. 
and their eating, and we don't know what the conversation uh, was. But something unplanned happens, and that often happens in the Christian life. God throws these things in that just, that just changes the thing, and it catches everyone off guard, and it tests where people are. We're never tested where we are when things are bubbling along nicely. Uh, there are routines that we are in. There are things that we assume. We're in a rhythm of life, and it's not till something important happens, something comes in like this, and you see the person's response to it. And that's what happens here. And Luke wants to say this is very unusual and this is very shocking. In verse 37, the word in, in the Greek is the first word, behold, behold. He doesn't use that word all the time. He, he's saying this is shocking. The, look what's happening here. This is unexpected. And what happens is that a woman comes in. She comes in, and she's allowed to come in. These meals were not private. These feast meals were not private. They would be round the table, but people were allowed to come in and stand around the walls in the room and observe what was going on, especially at feast times. You, you have these Pharisees, you have... Uh, other teachers and synagogue rulers and they're speaking and people would want to know what these people are saying. Uh, I grew up in an area where that that still happens at a communion time. Um, After each service, people go to a house and there might be 50 people crammed into a living room and many people are standing against the walls and there would be elders there and the visiting pastors and things like that and they would discuss things from the Bible and the young people would stand and listen and learn many things from listening to these people discuss things. That's a good thing to do. You can learn a lot. That's a free uh, seminary education uh, right there. It it depends who's doing the speaking, though. But this woman is allowed to come in. So sometimes this is presented as though it's very shocking that she's entered. It's not there would have been other people there, but the shock is who the woman is. That's the shock. Simon can't believe it. He doesn't say anything at first because he's so shocked and he's not really sure what to do. This is a woman who is known. She's known. A woman, verse 37, from the city who was a sinner. That's not telling us there that everyone is a sinner. That's not telling us there that technically she's a sinner. She was known as a sinner. That's the label that she's given, and that's the label Luke is willing to still continue with. She was known as a sinner. That's what's surprising here. You don't have sinners coming in to a meal like this, not at Simon's house. The tax collectors and the impure and the degraded of society, and certainly not someone who's known as someone who has behaved very publicly and consistently in a sinful manner. They're not the type of people that would think, I really want to be at Simon's house. That's the last place she would have wanted to go when she was living that life of sin. Simon doesn't interact with her, and she doesn't interact with Simon. If Simon saw her on the street corner, he wouldn't go anywhere near this woman. That is the word of God gone wrong. That is the gospel gone wrong. That we separate ourselves in that way from the sinful. That that is what had happened in Israel. That men like Simon and others um, who are in his position would view someone like this as untouchable and you don't go anywhere near them. You separate. There's them and then there's us. And Jesus arrives and says that this is all wrong. Now, Jesus isn't condoning here that you act like sin isn't a problem or that you, that you hang out in the area where the sinful people are and that you say, well, everyone's a sinner, so I'm going to interact with these people and act like their life is not a great offense to God. Jesus would never do that. They accused him of doing that. You are a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and you are a glutton. That's what they said to Jesus, uh, because he was willing to speak with them. Now, Jesus never condoned their life, and he didn't live in that life. But what he didn't do was cut himself off completely. 
And rather than this woman, when she comes in, that the Pharisee is so shocked to think, I can't have this woman even in my house or at my doorstep, the response should not be that. The response should be, what does she want? She's made in the image of God, and she's made the effort to come to this Pharisee's house. What does she want? Simon should have got up and gone and greeted her. Why are you here? You've never been here before. Can I help you? Can I speak with you? But no. She was a sinner and he knew her as a sinner and he almost chokes on his food when she walks in. And she comes in and she, she goes immediately to where Jesus is, where he was reclining And she has a plan, and the plan is to take this expensive jar of oil that she has saved and to anoint Christ's feet with it. But as she goes to Christ's feet to anoint him, she can't anoint him because she instinctively begins to weep. She she is overcome, and she begins to weep. Verse 38, she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. That's an accident. She didn't plan to, I'm going to cry and it will be symbolic if I wipe uh, his feet with my tears. She's standing and she realizes as she cries that the tears have fallen right where she's standing, right at his feet. And he's aware of it. He feels the, the tears dropping on his feet. And she instinctively then goes down to wipe them off and she doesn't have anything and she uses her hair and when she is wiped then she takes the oil that she had intended and she kisses his feet and then anoints his feet so why did this happen well clearly this woman who was a sinner had been saved This is not just an outward act of desperation or hope. This is someone who clearly had previously been saved. Now, this woman probably was sexually immoral. That is consistent with the kind of description that's given here. That's the kind of description that is given to someone who's living in adultery or who even makes their living from sexual immorality. And she's just given that label, sinner. She clearly is a sinner, and it's all she does. And she had interacted with Christ or heard him. She may not have spoken with him. Some people say she must have known Christ. She definitely recognized him. And um, if you tie it up with Matthew's gospel, it may be the case that she had heard Christ's great sermon on giving rest in Matthew 11. Come, Unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Blessed are you, Father, that you hid these things from the wise and the prudent and the Simons. But you have revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. The Christ great sermon one of his greatest sermons and she may have heard that call as a heavy laden burden guilty sinner someone who was giving herself probably to men and who felt very unclean and whose conscience was troubled and who had no peace and no love and no husband No faithful one. She had lost any chance of being regarded in the community or being taken seriously if she went to the synagogue. She had lost all of that and she had become isolated and living a life really by herself. And she had nothing that we by design long to have in this world God has given us. We want peace We want righteousness, in a sense. We want to be at peace in our conscience. And we want life and joy and happiness and intimacy and community and friendship. 
We want all of these things. And she'd blown all of that. And many of us have blown all of that, either with our whole life or just at various parts of our life. Sin just it knocks that and crushes it and it crumbles apart and we lose those things, that peace and that joy. She had lost it. And she had clearly heard of Christ, probably heard him personally, may have even met him. She certainly seen him somewhere, for she heard that Jesus was at this table at this man's house, and she wanted to go there. What a wonderful thing Christ had done for her, that Christ has the power and the grace and the insight to save people. People who are in situations that we would think that's lost, it's a lost cause. That someone so sinful like this, that he can take them and he can make her a daughter of God in a moment, and that that restoration process in her soul can begin. That's what had happened to her. And she goes to anoint him, and she weeps clearly, because she is moved, and she is thankful. She is deeply affected, and now governed by what Christ had done for her, and she doesn't care that the other men are there or what they'll think of it. This had happened to her. What of Simon's response to this in verse 39? He saw this and he spoke to himself, saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know what kind of woman this is who touches him. She is a sinner. Let me give you four lines to understand this passage and the contrast Luke gives. There's Simon's response and his devotion and her response and her devotion. And Simon's response is negative and, she, and he criticizes it. Now you notice he speaks to himself. Now, we are to think for ourselves and consider things ourselves, but this is very revealing of who this man is. He's sitting there. He seems to have welcomed Christ. He seems to be a Pharisee who believes in the mercy of God and the law of God and that God wants to redeem sinners. But you'll see immediately when something unexpected comes before him and he looks at the situation, he mutters to himself, not to God, not to Christ, it's to himself. And you see what he was thinking of Christ, if this man were a prophet. So he thinks Christ is claiming to just be a prophet, and he's already kind of decided before this meal that he probably is not a prophet, and this just seals it for him. If this man were who he claims to be and what people are saying that he is, he would know what kind of person this is who touches him. And he's not from God Because God wouldn't allow something like this. He just complains. And it shows him that he wants nothing to do with a person like this. How do we respond when God shows grace like this? How do we respond when an incident like this happens? Do we have a full-spectrum gospel? Is our gospel border defined by Scripture? Is it as wide as Scripture and as exact in whatever narrowness it has as Scripture? Are there borders defined by Scripture or something else? How would we respond if someone came in here like this? If a prostitute came here, how would we respond? If a tramp came here, a homeless man came here, if someone with mental problems and great anguish came here, If someone who's pierced themselves with needles came here, covered in tattoos, then how would we respond? How would we respond if they knocked at our front door? How would we respond if we were having a dinner together as a congregation or some of us were meeting together in each other's homes and a knock came to the door? Or not even a knock, if someone just walked into our house, how would we respond? 
would you like that or not like it? Now, we have to protect our homes. Obviously, someone very bad could come into our homes, but you know what I'm saying. You can discern fairly quickly if someone is dangerous or not. But what would we do if we finished the service here and were through there having the routine chat? And how would you respond if a prostitute came in? Would you know what to do? Could you be Christ's representative to that person? Do you expect God to bring people like that here? That's what the church is for. The church will gather more tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners than it ever will people who think they're good. People who think they're good don't want a gospel. Why are there so many engineers and mathematicians and uh, people who do well? Why is the church filled with them? When was the last time you met someone who had formerly lived a life like this and the church had embraced them? Now, it might not be our fault. Um, there's all kinds of ways of looking at that. I'm not bringing it up because I'm saying it's our fault that they're not here, but how would you respond if they came in? Well, Simon responded badly. He just doesn't like this kind of thing. It's, it's very inconvenient. Um, it's not what he had planned. He wants to question Jesus. And you see what he thinks of people like this. He just looks and goes, that person's scum. They've done this. They've done that. I don't trust them. Oh, they say they're interested in the gospel, but people like that say that all the time. And they're probably not going to be saved. Now, if, if you say that, if you say that, I would find it very hard to believe that God dwells in you if you would say that. If people come here because they're interested, if people uh, come into your life and they're desperate and they're broken and and then they say something like, I want to find God in this. And if you say, well, I'll give you a Bible or a tract or something and I'll meet with you a few times. But in your heart, like Simon, you're saying, they're not going to be saved. I've seen lots of people like this and they're never saved and this person isn't going to be saved. If, if that's what you lead off with, people are not going to be saved. You are nothing like Jesus Christ. Nothing like him at all. You've lost a sight of the power of the gospel. That the gospel takes people precisely like this and it saves them. Simon's response is bad and his response is then it expressed in his devotion and we see how he makes a show of the devotion but it lacks so much and and Jesus tells us in verse 44 do you see this woman I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet verse 45 you gave me no kiss verse 46 you did not anoint my head with oil um Simon invited him. It seems very official and very polite, but when you read between the lines, there is a a great problem in this man's heart, and he clearly does not know God sent one. He does not know the gospel. He has not embraced the message, and he had heard it. These people were very blessed. These people lived when Jesus Christ was on the earth, and Jesus Christ was the main preacher. He didn't need to listen to a, a fallen pastor. That's a message that's filtered through a sinner. These people heard the Son of God preaching, and he's heard it all. And the Son of God, the Messiah with a claim to Messiahship, comes to his house, and look what he doesn't do. Now, some of these things were not automatic requirements. People say that. It's awful that he didn't offer the water for the feet. And we kind of presume things about the Jews that we have to be careful because we weren't there. It wasn't always required that you gave water for the feet. Not always. It wasn't always a requirement. It was a kind thing to do. But certainly someone this important, who's the most well-known prophet in the country at the time. Thousands of people have heard him. The whole country is talking about him. And he comes into the house and Simon doesn't even, he doesn't even think, I better offer to have someone wash his feet. He doesn't kiss him, and he doesn't anoint his head with oil, which was a Jewish custom. Like giving a refreshing wipe in a very hot country. These things were kind things to do, and and it's Christ that points out to him 
you didn't do these things. So what does he think of Christ? What's his devotion to God? He thinks, I love God. I wake up each morning and I read the Torah and I say the Shema and I pray seven times a day and I dress in the, in the Jewish Pharisaic garb. My tassels are correct. And I speak the word of God in the original Hebrew and I go to the synagogue and all of these things. This is someone who thought he was very devoted. But Christ comes into his home. He doesn't kiss him. He doesn't offer to wash his feet. He doesn't offer to give him any oil just to refresh him. And Christ points it out. And Why didn't he do that? Well, why was his devotion like that? It's Christ tells a little parable to let us know why. The parable is in verse 41 and 42. One man owned 50, one man owned 500. They were both, both debts were cancelled. Which one loved more? He tells Simon this parable to basically say to him, you think you only owe me 50 denarii. You owe a lot more than that. His lack of devotion, his lack of affection, his lack of the kissing and the, and the foot washing and getting down even himself to do it if he'd known who Christ was. Christ deserves that. He's the king of glory. He's the savior. And this man's heart has not been open to that reality at all. He just treats him like me and you, we're, we're equal. I'm going to question you. I'm going to question you and see what you have to say and then I'm going to come to a conclusion and then you, then you can leave. Christ says to him, you don't know who I am. I'm the one who cancels these debts. You think you know the God of Israel. I am the God of Israel. How much do you think you owe God, Simon? And the parable reveals that Christ knows his heart. He thinks he owes God 50. Not Not much. Enough to trouble his conscience and enough for him to go through all these routines to have it forgiven. But he thinks he owes about 50. And when he sees this woman, he says, she's the real, she's the real problem. That's who the gospel is really for. It's not for me. I have the gospel. I have the gospel. I know the God of Israel. And I'm doing all these things. And, and God is pleased with the life that I am living. Not her. She owes a lot more than I do. That's his response, and that's his devotion, and that's why he responded that way. But turning to her for a moment, what does, what does Christ's little parable tell us about what's going on with her? Well, it's, it's night and day. In her, there is a realization of great debt. Christ says that she owes 500 denarii. Now, these denarii were a day's uh, labor, of manual labor, an, an average wage. And if, to put out all the mathematics, uh, in today's money, let's just say he thought he owed about $6,000. She owed at least $60,000. Let's just put it there. Now, obviously, Christ isn't being exact. He's, he's giving an image here. But you see the difference. He thinks, I, I can write a quick check and deal with this. She can't. How is she ever going to find $60,000 to pay back the creditor? She has come to a realization of the seriousness of sin. Now, Christ doesn't pass over her sin. He says her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. He doesn't just pass over it. But the difference between this man and this woman is the work of grace that reveals to us a sense of the reality and awfulness of sin. And that's what pierces you and I in the heart this morning as, as we consider this passage. That's what the passage is about. The passage basically asks us how serious is sin and how do we view ourselves 
Her love and devotion is a direct consequence of the greatness with which she has seen her sin as Christ revealed it to her. When God meets us and comes into our lives, when he converts someone's soul and gives them the new birth, they see their sin for the first time. When the Spirit comes, the Lord says, he shall convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That is the way into the kingdom. You can't bypass that. You cannot embrace a Christ and embrace a cross that forgives sin unless you know what sin is. And Christ showed her it was revealed in her heart. Her conscience was awakened and she saw the ramifications of her sin. That it was too much. That it was overwhelming. That it was far more than she ever considered. And when she saw it, there was only one hope, that it would be placed on someone else and forgiven. That's the way she sees sin. And I wonder how we see sin. I wonder how much we think we owe. And in the day we live in, and as we come here in the morning, and as we worship right now, and as we leave, I wonder for each of us, what we think of the thing. And there is no doubt, in my mind, at least, that the doctrine of sin has been one of the main targets for Satan in the modern, affluent Western church. Because if he destroys that, if he shrouds that, and if he numbs it and dilutes it, the rest of the gospel becomes diluted. People used to be pierced by their sins. People used to weep over their sins. People used to be greatly moved as the gospel was preached and as sin was made clear and God's love was made clear. This has been numbed. And even for those of us who would say that we love the Lord Jesus Christ and then say why we love him, he died for my sins. I wonder for myself and for yourself how much reality and accuracy is within that statement and how deep it is. I wonder if our view of what Christ has done and our view of ourselves is like taking a spade and pushing it down with the foot and taking up a couple of inches of soil and that's about it. It goes far deeper than that. And she realized it. That sin... That any sin finds its only appropriate response in the bowels of hell. We don't want to hear that on a Sunday morning. Even the professing Christian church hates it. We hate the truth. Everything we've done We think it's so good. And we think we're like Simon. And that we have a few blemishes, but it's no big deal. And we lose the gospel. The things we have done do not deserve a slap on the wrists. We have to find God in this. He is great. He is perfect and righteous. Sin is. is is an abhorrence. It should never have existed. And I fear for us all because we can't give the gospel to others when we don't know the seriousness of the thing ourselves. How can I say to someone, you need to be saved from your sin if I don't really know? I say I know. I know how serious it is. Do I How can we know how serious it is if we never meditate upon hell? That's the only place where Christ reveals to us in his gospel. That's the only place where we can look at and be shocked like Luke wants to shock us and say, is is that 
what I deserved? Is that what my good life that looks good to others, is is that what it actually deserves? How evil it must be. As George Whitfield preached, our best prayers are damnable. Simon is like most of us. There aren't many people like this woman. You can tell Simon again and again and again, you're a sinner, you have failure in your life, you have this, you're that. He says, I know, I know. I know the Bible. I know I'm a sinner, I'm a Jew. I know these things. Maybe I know it in the same way. Maybe you, maybe you know that too. But I, I, where is the reality? You have to dig deep down in your Christian life. You have to read You have to pray. You need to read from Genesis to Revelation. You need to dig into the thing. And you need to stop when you come to difficult passages throughout the Bible that reveal all of a sudden the fierceness of God against any sin. And you need to stop there. And and you need to take stock and consider. Simon didn't. And Simon was probably lost. It doesn't tell us here that he was saved. And it's because he didn't do that. He was willing to acknowledge the 50 denarii debt and no more. She discovered that her debt was huge. And because of that, as she looked at her past life, and as she thought about the words of Christ to her, And as she sat in her home and it all fell into place and the Spirit of God made it clear to her, then she put her faith in the Savior and became a slave of Christ, a maid servant of Christ. And she was bound to him then by faith and she realized that the debt had been paid, that it had been blotted out by God for Christ's sake. And her response is to go to this house. She hears he's near. She wants to go into the house. She goes into the room and all she sees is him. And she goes to give the richest thing she has. The expensive thing she has. To pour it upon him. Her family heirloom. The thing she'd saved her whole life. That may have been worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And she wanted to pour it on him and look at the reality. She cannot go near him without the heart breaking and the contrition and the worship and the thankfulness pouring from her eyes first, but pouring really from her heart. As her tears pour and as the ointment pours, we are seeing physical manifestations of a pouring heart to Christ. Simon has no pouring heart for Christ. He has a plug hole in his heart. And he talks the talk and walks the walk. But you never see tears. You never see affectionate language. You never see him on his knees. You never see him kissing the Savior. And you can tell from his words that there is no kissing in these words. They are too cold, too objective. There is no kissing. You go to Simon and you say, how are you? And he speaks very objectively and he'll talk about everything apart from Jesus Christ. And you never see him kiss the Savior. But this woman, this nameless woman, her heart has discovered the richest thing that has ever existed. And she has gained the riches of the gospel, and her heart pours with devotion. And you see, as we bring this to a close, you see um, the kind of devotion it is, and mirror it with yourself, my dear friend, the kind of devotion that um, she didn't wash his feet, but she wiped, she did it with her tears. Verse 45, this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, She anointed my feet with the fragrant 
oil. Her devotion is seen in the lowness that, that she displays. That her heart is drawn to Christ like a magnet. That she wants to be near him and to hear him and to touch him and to look at him. And that she takes something that she could easily say, I could tithe this and give this to the church. Or we could, I could use this on my house, this money. No, she takes her most expensive possession and she breaks it in an act of devotion and veneration to Jesus Christ. And she goes down low and she doesn't mind touching his feet, his dirty feet with her hair. And then she, she wipes the tears off and she kisses the feet. Are you willing to kiss feet? When you think of Christ, when you pray in Christ's name, when you come to worship, when we talk to each other about Christ, is Christ an object in a display case in a museum? Prophet, priest, and king. Let's talk about him. Is he just a mannequin in a display case? that is the key to me getting out of hell? Or is he the living Christ? And do we want to kiss his feet, not shake his hand, not put our arm around him, not stand equal to him face to face? But do you see him as so worthy that you're afraid to touch any other part of him in case he thinks it's not appropriate? And are you willing to say to him, If I can only kiss your feet, I am rich. In my prayers and singing, in my conversation, and in my secret considerations in my heart, do I venerate and worship this person? Or am I like Simon? That we say much to ourselves. And it is hardened, it is unworshipful, it is not full of love. It never rises to the point where the emotions cannot take it anymore and all the body can do is release the tears. She loved much, he says, because she was forgiven much. Verse 47. Those who love little are forgiven little. The size of our sins determines the size of our love. The size, the reality and sense we have of the the real deserving of our sin, it determines the size and the working and the life of our love. She was forgiven much and she knew it, so she loved much. And for you, my dear friend, man or woman or child, do you ever look at what you are and then look at what Christ gives and what he will do for sinners? And can you say that you have embraced him to such an extent that you cry because of the wonder and thankfulness and relief of what you've been saved from. I wonder if the lack of tears in us is because of a lack of love, and the lack of love finds its explanation in our view of sin and our view of Christ. We can, man can pat you on the back and we can pat each other on the back and have conversations. We can pat each other on the back and say, good Christian, but it, it, it doesn't matter. All that matters is what Christ sees. And he is the physician and he comes in. This man thought he would analyze Christ. Christ is there with the stethoscope and it, it's, it's put on the chest and he knows what's going on in Simon's heart and that happens every time we worship. All of us have a stethoscope on our heart right now. And Christ knows, and 
you can say it to me and I can say it to you. We're, we're good Christians. It matters not. There are too many presumptuous declarations to each other that we're all fine. Simon thought he was fine. But this woman kissed the feet and loved the Savior. And it is clear. Do you ever worship Christ in this way? Do you see him by faith and does it move your heart? If your heart has never been moved, if you don't speak words of love and adoration often for this person, if you are never broken in your heart and have tears of joy and relief and worship and thankfulness and consecration are never released. What does that say? But Christ will accept it. He won't. She is forgiven because she loved much, he says. It's the woman that's forgiven here. He does not say anything about Simon being okay. He says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. He was talking to Simon. Do you see this woman, Simon? Let me tell you a parable. Let me explain it to you. Let me open up your heart. And then he turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He says no such thing to Simon. We need to be justified by Christ and not by ourselves. Now, as I close, I say this, that all this wrapped up together shows the greatness of the forgiveness that can be ours in this person. It is real. It is, it is exact. And your entire sin history can be blotted out by the work of Christ. The sin can be dealt with in him. And the real guilt and the real shame and the hell-deserving fire that flickers in each action of sin, it can be taken by Christ. It can all be put there so that you are justified and that you do not carry that record, that you have no condemnation and that your conscience can be new, your life can be new, your love can be new can be new and you can walk in purity and in cleanness and in devotion and service to Jesus Christ it can be yours Christianity always offers a fresh start always while we are alive in this world there is always time but the time is short but it can be yours all that you have done, that is, it's going to be slammed and crushed by God. It can all be blotted out in Jesus Christ. And you can have what this woman has. You don't need to keep living in it. You don't need to live imprisoned to the hopeless life that this woman has. And maybe you think you can't be forgiven. Maybe you think you can't be happy. Maybe you think you're never going to have a joy like hers and a freedom that does go in peace, but you can have it. Christ will give all that to you. And how does he give it? Your faith has saved you. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. That's what links us to this. That's what links us in. That's what attaches us to all that he has done. That you place your faith, as she did, in him. That you trust and entrust 
your soul to him. That you move in an act of faith as he calls you and says, come to me, that you respond and you do come and you entrust and place and believe all he is and all that he has said about you and you become a slave of Christ because the slaves of Christ are the ones who are truly free and it is only the slave of Christ that has true peace to be delivered from yourself and to be enslaved to him. All that can be yours by faith. Don't stand waiting for him to elect you. Leave that to God. Christ's command is to come. And we must all get in line behind this woman. Now I know there are many people here, maybe everyone here may be a Christian. I'm not talking about getting in line and signing a card. I'm saying even the Christian must hear the gospel and look at this woman and honestly, has this prostitute outdone you? Is her love for Christ greater than you, though you think you're better than everyone and better than her? Is her love greater than yours? Do you ever fall down? Do you ever weep? Do you ever kiss and worship? But you walk out of here saying, I didn't need to hear that. I'm good enough. You're not good enough. Get behind this woman and learn from her. And when I see you weep, and when I see you kiss, and when I see you cry out with praise to Christ, then you and I might have attained to what this woman has. And at the moment, I wonder if this fallen, weak, lukewarm generation is telling itself that we are the greatest Christians that ever lived and we are no such thing. And I put myself first in the list. We don't do this and we make excuses every week that we don't do it. My friends, and I'm sorry I must speak so clearly, and may God be the judge of me and may he purge my sermons of whatever sin are in them, But this is life and death and hell. And I am tired of cordiality and politeness when our souls are on the line. This woman was a sinner. And she was saved. And please, my friends, let us be saved. And if we are saved, let us behave like saved people, treat each other in that way, and let us interact underneath this we have no right to behave as we do when Christ saves prostitutes and he forgives them and he gives them peace please please stop telling yourself every week we're fine we're good enough my dear friends let us go into the room and fall down and take the most expensive things we have and pour them upon him and kiss him. I didn't write this book. The Holy Spirit wrote this book. May God give us the grace to embrace Jesus Christ fully. Now let's close now. Let's stand for a moment to pray. Let us pray. O Lord our God, give us Christ today and let us devote ourselves to him. Let us worship him and be truly thankful that this person died for sinners. Let us worship him. Let us be filled with thanksgiving for what he has done for us. And let us examine ourselves, as you always tell us to do, and compare ourselves to what you reveal in the gospel. 
We praise you for what you did for this woman. And she clearly was changed by you. And she showed it. And she was overcome and governed and filled with the grace of the gospel. And she never had a look at her old life again. But she moved on from it free and filled with the glory of God. O Lord, let us learn. Let us take from your word what you have for us. And in this day in which the enemy speaks so loudly, and he deceives man, and he comes and attacks us, even in our church, and he always wants to turn us away from the truth and to lower what Christ has done, and he wants to numb our sense of what we owe to you. Help us to hear instead the voice of Christ, who said, Blessed are the poor and destitute in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for it is they who shall be comforted. Be with us on this your day now, and guard us and fill us with your grace And may we live and walk as Christians who love your word and who speak much of it. Let us be those who have the name Christian, but also the heart and the words and the thankfulness and the affection that comes only from Christ. Bless us, O Lord. Wash us. And pour your spirit upon us. For Christ's name's sake we pray. Amen.